Welcome to the Nature MI podcast. Here, we uncover nature-inspired solutions to the world's most urgent problems, like climate change and global pandemics. We talk with thought leaders and innovators who are taking their cues from nature, and we explore ways to unravel nature's deepest secrets. Now here's your host, a man who finds inspiration in nature on a daily basis, Dr. Victor Shamas. Greetings, my friends. On this episode of Nature Am I, we will be talking to Richard Heinberg, Senior Fellow at the Post Carbon Institute and the author of 13 books, including Our Renewable Future, The End of Growth, Power Down, and Peak Everything. Richard is considered an authority on peak oil and one of the foremost advocates for the shift away from fossil fuels and towards more renewable forms of energy. His nonprofit organization, the Post Carbon Institute, has as its mission to lead the transition to a more resilient, sustainable, and equitable world. Although he is focused on issues of sustainability for most of his career, in recent years Richard has turned his attention towards building more resilient communities. We discussed that shift in the conversation you'll be hearing. Our interview took place during the summer of 2020. At the time of doing the final edits on this episode, the Gulf of Mexico was hit with one of the most powerful hurricanes ever seen there. In California, forest fires ravaged over 1.2 million acres, and the world was faced with record-breaking heat waves, including a daytime high of 130 degrees in Death Valley. All of these events are clear consequences of unsustainable practices in our country and throughout the world. In a set of instructional videos called Think Resilience, Richard shows community leaders and activists how to prepare for major ecological and economic disturbances caused by climate change and other issues. We call this episode Unpaving Paradise because this seems to reflect an overarching theme in Richard Heinberg's life work. In his first book, Memories and Visions of Paradise, Richard explores the notion of paradise as it appears in many of the world's mythologies. Here we discuss the relationship between paradise and connection to nature. During our conversation, Richard referred to the Joni Mitchell song, Big Yellow Taxi, in which she states, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Once paradise has been paved over, how do you unpave it? We examine many aspects of this question here, from breaking our dependence on non-renewable sources of energy and finding ways to conserve energy as well as minimize its use, to the idea of breaking free from the economic trap of seeking limitless growth. We talked about the replacement of profit motive with more healthy pursuits such as happiness and beauty. And we examined various approaches to building a more fulfilling and sustainable future for our species and our planet. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Richard Heinberg. 
Richard Heinberg, welcome to the Nature of My podcast. It's very good to be with you, Victor. And we're really glad to have you. I don't mind uh, being biased interviewer and saying that I really admire your work. And I want to start by asking you about how you began your career. Looking at information about you online, I found out that you had been a personal assistant to Emmanuel Velikovsky. I read uh, his book, Worlds in Collision, many years ago when I was in my 20s. It was very influential. I'm curious to know how, how that came to be and what effects did working with Velikovsky have on your, your own work? Uh, I, I had read Worlds in Collision as well as and a couple of his other books. And a, a, a friend of mine happened to know Velikovsky and knew that he needed a research assistant and uh, got me an intro and I was hired. Um, unfortunately, I, I got to Princeton, New Jersey, where Velikovsky lived just five days before he passed away. So oh. <laughs> I was I was his personal assistant for a very short time, but I but I stayed on working for his family uh, for another three or four years, helping organize his papers and so on. And you know, I think he was a, he was a maverick intellectual, and he had some observations that were very useful. He was he was uh, a catastrophist in terms of Earth history and, and uh, planetary history. Uh, at a time when the orthodoxy was uniformitarianism. Uh, the belief was that the solar system and Earth had evolved in very uh, uniform conditions. Basically, what we see today just extended into the past. And Velikovsky said, no, uh, the, the Earth and, and solar system were shaped by rare cataclysmic events. And that is, is now accepted largely by astronomers and, and geologists. The, the orthodoxy has shifted. Now, the specifics of what Velikovsky was talking about in terms of which planets moved where, when, and, and so on, that has not been borne out by subsequent research. And I do not consider myself a Velikovskian in that sense anymore, and I haven't for a very long time. But I was happy to live in Princeton, New Jersey for a few years and have access to the Princeton University Library, uh, where I did the research for my first book. And so it was a very positive experience, even though, you know, we all make mistakes. And, uh, <laughs> and Velikovsky certainly made his share. Speaking of your first book, I wanted to ask you about that, uh, Memories and Visions of Paradise, in which you wrote... The memory of paradise represents an innate and universal longing for a state of being that is natural and utterly fulfilling, but from which we have somehow excluded ourselves. That is actually very consistent with some of the themes of this particular podcast. And I just wanted to ask you about your take on the relationship between humans and nature and how paradise, how that vision of paradise ties into that. Uh, after thinking about this for a very long time, my current take on it is that th there is this universal myth. Just about every culture has, has this idea that there was a, a time in the past when people lived in harmony with nature and e sometimes even had miraculous powers and could speak to the animals and understand the animals' language and, and so on. The reason for that is that we have used our amazing linguistic and technological powers as humans to alienate ourselves from the natural world. We've, we have done so as, as a way of controlling nature to our advantage, and, uh, and we've done that very successfully. But in the process, we've also alienated ourselves, and this has created a deep 
uh, psychological and spiritual rift that we all carry around within us. Part of it is a result of language itself. Language is an enormously powerful tool. It enables us to do amazing things. And language really makes us human in the sense in which we think of ourselves as human, not just biological creatures, but cultural masters of, of all we survey. But language entails, you know, first of all, a split between the left and right hemispheres of our brain. Uh, and also it requires us to categorize everything. And in the process, we, we really lose our direct apprehension of the world as it is. So that's, that's the short <laughs> story. Yeah, we, we, we left paradise. And, and as Joni Mitchell said, we put up a parking lot. <laughs> well, paradise may not necessarily exist as a geographical space, but... Uh, don't you feel like it does exist to a certain degree as an experience? I mean, we've, we've experienced that sense of harmony in nature. Most of us have had that experience at some point in our lives. And those moments at least feel like paradise, even if we're not living in a space where that's sustainable. Absolutely. And uh, everything that we do to regain that internal connection with paradise has to do with the, the things we're, we were just talking about, language, for example, quieting the chattering monkey of our mind, you know, is, uh, as Eastern philosophers have said for thousands of years, you know, a key to uh, finding, finding peace and, and contentment. Uh, getting into the flow of an artistic endeavor like, uh, like playing chamber music or painting or, or swimming or you know, you name it, it's all really about, you know, finding that connection between the, the brain hemispheres, uh, getting beyond the, the, uh, the chatter, which really brings us back to the way we originally functioned. A lot of people spend their lives searching for those, those peak moments, and, and rightly so. <laughs> you know? If you aren't looking for that, if you're not in touch with that, if you don't value those moments, then, then life is, is pretty dreary. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I just will mention that my last book is called Deep Creativity, and it's about the, that kind of experience. Like, that's the whole reason that some of us create is whatever the outcome is, we connect with, with something in our bodies, we connect with nature, we have some kind of profound experience. Uh, I'm assuming with all the writing you've done, you probably had a significant number of those uh, experiences, whether you call them flow or inspiration or whatever. We're in a very interesting time, speaking of catastrophe and cataclysm. Uh, I would like to get your take on sort of the state of the world where humanity stands. One of the things that I've read in your work, and I'm going to be talking to you in a little bit about this distinction you're making between resilience, which I know is a focal point right now of your work and sustainability, and you say, that resilience is being able to adapt to disturbance and sus sustainability is about trying to avoid that kind of disturbance in the first place. And I'm wondering, you know, if you switched your emphasis to resilience because the disturbances are coming and they're here, you know, here they are in 2020. Are we, do you feel like we're being thrust into a time of cataclysmic change? Short answer, yes. Um, and uh, you know, we should have seen it coming. I mean, it's been clear for decades that we had created an unsustainable mode of existence. It was based on fossil fuels through and through. 
fossil fuels not only cause climate change, they're also uh, finite depleting resources. So the idea that we could somehow continue industrial civilization for decades and decades, much less centuries and millennia, was, was absurd on the face of it. But we didn't have any other plan. You know, there, there was literally no plan to transition to something else. And so now we're getting to the point where it's all catching up with us. World conventional oil production flatlined starting in 2005, and that's part of what triggered the uh, global financial crash in 2008. Then we transitioned to unconventional oil uh, by way of fracking and horizontal drilling. And uh, that was a pyramid scheme. Nobody was making money on it because these are such low quality resources. But nevertheless, you know, that there was a lot of money floating around as a result of the bailouts from the 2008 crash. And they were looking for the next big thing. And uh, there were a lot of clever investor presentations by small companies that focused on, on fracking. And so they produced a heck of a lot of oil in short order. And it, it looked like everything was fine. But now that's crashing partly as a result of, of uh, what's going on with the, the coronavirus and, and the, uh, the, the crashing of the economy in response to that. So, you know, I could go on. There, there are lots of threads of, you know, unsustainable practices in the financial sector, in the energy sector, in uh, resource extraction and waste and pollution in the environment. All of them are converging. We can't adapt our way out fast enough to avoid some really dramatic consequences from the way we've all lived for the past number of decades. That's why we're focusing uh, at Post Carbon Institute on resilience, because resilience, as you say, is the ability to absorb shocks and, and bounce back. And society is going to need a tremendous amount of resilience over the next few decades if we're going to make it through what's, what's headed our way. And we focus on, particularly on community resilience because we think that, uh, first of all, large-scale political organization is going to have a really tough time dealing with this. I think the United States itself may be uh, not long for this world as a you know, united political <laughs> entity. And it's at the community level where we can be most active and, and have, the, have the greatest impact. You know, you can, you can know people in your community face to face. You don't have, have to just think of them in terms of categories or, or memes on Facebook. You can talk things through. Uh, you can see the results of your choices uh, much more quickly. Yeah, we see resilience as the most important thing now. Not that we should abandon the idea of sustainability. You know, clearly whatever we build needs to be sustainable in the sense that it doesn't rely on extracting renewable resources faster than they can regenerate. It doesn't depend on extracting ever larger amounts of non-renewable resources. It doesn't generate wastes that can't be absorbed by the environment. Those are all the you know, the criteria of sustainability, and we really need to take them seriously in everything we do going forward. But, uh, you know, we haven't, <laughs> we right. haven't been sustainable up to this point. And so we got a lot of, we got a lot of crap headed our way. You talk about local economies and cooperatives. These are ideas that have been around a long time. Right. Part of my question to you is, I'm a global thinker. I'm imagining that you're a global thinker. How do you balance global and localized action? I mean, 
resilience is important, and I am very enthused about running by some an action plan in my local community after working through your Think Resilience course. But at the same time, I don't want to give up on the idea of a global movement. I think right. that the Black Lives Matter, the response to the George Floyd shooting shows that when you touch an emotional nerve, people will mobilize very quickly on a large scale to, to do something. So how do you see that balance? Uh, right. Well, I mean, the old saying is, think globally, act locally. And as long as we have uh, global communications media, I think it's important that we use them to greatest effect possible. On the other hand, it's, it's entirely possible that we won't always have uh, digital media available to us. This is, this is one of the things that concerns me most. We haven't created any kind of real backup for the digital world. I mean, you know, it's, uh, we've digitized just about everything with the assumption that the grid will always be here for us. I'd like to think that it will be, but there are lots of easily foreseeable circumstances that would lead to the grid coming down for very long periods of time or maybe permanently, in including natural events like what's called a, a Carrington event. Back in the 1850s, there was a solar storm that was so powerful that, you know, at that time, the only uh, electrical technology that existed was telegraph wires, and it fried all the telegraph wires. If an event happened, like that now, it would take down power grids and hard drives, computer servers and server farms all over the place. And we would be left emerging from our huts and wondering what happened. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> so I think civilization has accomplished some really cool things. You know, we yeah. have this the Hubble Space Telescope. We've decoded the, the human genome. We've you know, over the last century or so, we have found out some really cool stuff. The trouble is, almost all of it is digitized, and it's extremely vulnerable to being lost. I, I wrote a piece a, a few years ago called the, the Extraordinary Duty of Librarians, something like that. <laughs> it's because, you know, librarians have been kind of left in the dust presiding over these stacks of, of printed books that seem like they're, you know, just outmoded and useless. But in fact, that's the knowledge that civilization has accumulated that is in some way actually durable and resilient. And we need to take care of that stuff <laughs> so we can pass it down to the next generations. Well, do you have any thoughts on, on how to do that? Because if we get to a point where energy is scarce and limited, I personally would vote for putting our energy resources towards maintaining the web, because that is one of the great accomplishments of the last century, in my view. Right. So, you know, what's your take? I mean, we're not going to go back to printing on paper, are we? Uh, well, I don't think we should give it up. But at the same time, yeah, I agree with you about the web. And that's, that's one of the reasons that uh, we are, you know, strong advocates of, of building a renewable energy infrastructure. At the same time, we've done a lot of analysis on renewable energy and what, uh, what it can do and what it can't do. Our conclusion at the end of the day, and you can find this on our website, ourrenewablefuture.org, our conclusion is that it's extremely unlikely that we'll be able to produce enough renewable energy generation capacity to replace our current fossil fuel energy sources one-to-one. -one. 
we could build a renewable energy infrastructure that supplies, you know, 10, 20% of our current energy usage. And that would be enough to maintain the web in some form. You know, it's not going to be enough to take us to, you know, 5G and 6G and 20G. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we could maintain the necessities, you know. We we might not be able to watch reruns of, of 1970s TV shows forever, but there are more important things. We might have to do some triage and make some choices, but I think it's really important that we invest realistically now in what can be maintained. So speaking of energy, renewable energy, I read your review of Planet of the Humans, Jeff Gibbs and Michael Moore's film, which was tremendously disheartening. Their take is that renewable energy is not where it needs to be that it's depleting mineral resources and it may take more energy or it takes a lot of energy to produce renewable energy. And I personally feel that what's going on is a lack of vision and lack of imagination because the way the solar and wind are conceived now isn't the be all and end all. For example, the field of biomimicry is saying we should be modeling how we do photosynthesis, for example, on what plants do. And, if, and I personally feel that if we can't model based on how plants do it, we should just let plants do it and figure yeah. out a way to tap into that. I've read about photosynthetic fuel cells for a long time and they haven't gone anywhere as far as I know. Right. So, so do you think that the problem with renewable energy is just that that something is blocking the progress and advancement of this to a level where it could be. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it, it is possible that there are technological breakthroughs on the horizon that could enable renewable energy to do a lot more and uh, more cheaply. If that were the case, then we would face another big choice because look at how we use energy currently. It's not just where the energy comes from, fossil fuels, that's a problem, okay? But what do we use energy for? For extracting raw materials, processing them, turning them into consumer products, which we then discard and become waste. That way of organizing the economy is destroying the natural world. It's causing a, a, a mass extinction, and it makes us miserable and unhealthy in the process. So there's a lot more going on than just climate change and just the problem of of fossil fuels. If we want human society to be more sustainable, we should aim over the long term for a smaller population using less on a per capita basis, but doing it in a way that makes us happy and that doesn't degrade the, the world around us. I mean, that, those, those are really simple, I think, universally understandable goals, but they aren't shared by our policymakers. You know, every policymaker wants only one thing, more economic growth, and will not hear of anything else. And as long as we're in that mindset, that completely unrealistic, unhinged mindset, then we're not gonna get any place good. You've pointed out that this idea of unlimited growth is almost like a religious faith. So getting people to convert out of that, what's it going to take? Do you think with uh, Thomas Kuhn's ideas about paradigm shifts, you almost have to wait for the old guard to retire, die off, 
do you see that that's what's going to happen? Or, or do, do you think that the uh, leverage point, I think you had said something about maybe the leverage point is when things hit the fan, right? When mm -hmm. things get bad enough where everybody starts screaming and yelling and we can't take this anymore, <laughs> is might be where the paradigm shift happens. Which well, I think, I think we'll shift away from economic growth as a policy goal when that policy goal is obviously no longer attainable. And I think we may be there with the coronavirus pandemic and its uh, economic consequences, particularly here in the U.S. We're seeing now, I, I just saw an estimate yesterday, and it was only an estimate, but it's, it suggested employment could actually be down currently by over 50%. I think that's unlikely. I think it's probably more in the range of 40%. But we are in an economic depression on par with the Great Depression of the 1930s and possibly worse. Uh, this is not going to be solved anytime soon. And we've, we have a debt bubble that's looming, uh, ripe to pop, that's much much bigger than the one that existed in 2007. The only way to unwind that is with massive bankruptcies. There would be another way, which is massive debt forgiveness. And actually, that would be much better. And hopefully, some folks in charge will figure that out before long. But even, you know, wide-scale debt forgiveness, somebody loses on that score too. We can't get out of this free of charge, but nevertheless, there are better, better ways and worse ways of doing it. But we are in a situation where you know, economic growth is something we'll tell our kids about. It's not something that uh, we can foresee happening in the future. So that being the case, what do you do? Well, you start organizing your economy around what you can achieve. We actually can achieve better quality of life, better health care, more happiness, these things don't take economic growth necessarily. They can be achieved with more connection, more cultural events, better social cohesion, better leadership, uh, more transparent government. And these are all possible. Right now, unfortunately, in the U.S., some of those things are, are very far from view. We don't have a very transparent government. We don't have good leadership, et cetera, et cetera. But at least they are attainable without destroying the environment and killing a lot of people. So those are the things we should be aiming for. And there are lots of folks who have thought this through over a long period of time. There's a whole field of economics called steady state economics or ecological economics. And these folks have thought through what all alternative indicators instead of GDP, we could use gross national happiness as a way of measuring our progress. Uh, universal basic income is an idea that came from the post-growth economists and more and more. There are tools that are available. Now that the shit has hit the fan, it's time that we start availing ourselves of them. Something like a steady state economy, do you think that at a local level, if we're in a point of a severe crisis, for example, markets crash, runaway inflation, do you think that implementing that type of economy is something that could be done fairly rapidly? And do you think it would involve uh, things like local currencies? You know, I mentioned cooperatives. What pieces do you see that could be put in place fairly quickly in a community if the world economy came to a standstill? Right. Well, local currencies take a while to develop and get going. And a lot of other local institutions do as well. So that's why, you know, we've been advocating community resilience for some time, because ideally, you need to get started before the crash happens. Well, we may not have that luxury. <laughs> We're in a difficult situation now. So we have to do what we can as we can. There are things like state banks that could be set up fairly rapidly 
that uh, right now uh, there's the North Dakota State Bank, and it's helped that state uh, weather a lot of storms over the years. The problem is that economic sovereignty exists only for certain governments. The, the U.S. federal government has financial or monetary sovereignty, so it can run up huge deficits, and it's not a problem. Uh, the Federal Reserve can monetize the debt. Uh, there are all kinds of ways of, of getting around that problem. But states don't have that privilege. States have to run a balanced budget or in the worst instance, they'll go bankrupt. A state bank could create currency for states to use to run deficits so that they can solve their immediate problems. Over the long term, if you do that irresponsibly, yeah, that does produce inflation, even hyperinflation. But you know, we're in a situation right now where we've got to create some money out of somewhere to keep people from starving and to create some kind of recovery back to a state that is sustainable. Those are some things that could be done for fairly quickly. Well, it seems to me that, for example, Ithaca hours or, or some of these alternative currencies are based on labor. And one thing that even in the worst case scenario that we always have to back a currency would be our own energy, uh, human resources. Do you see that that could be how things are going to move in the future towards economies that are based on exchange of services, exchange of time and effort? Sure. Yeah. Time banking is uh, has a history and folks who are interested in it can Google it. And some of these systems uh, run quite well. Of course, you always arrive at the conundrum of, you know, some people's time just inherently seems to be worth more than other people's time because they have invested a lot in specialty education and, and they have more experience and and so on. But there are ways around that. There are ways of accounting for that without necessarily creating a situation where we have just the absurd situation now where a CEO can be earning a thousand, five thousand times as much as one of his employees. And nobody's time is worth that much more than somebody else's. You know, there, there are differentials, but they should be within a certain realistic range. Maybe up to 10 to 1 is, is understandable, but you get beyond that and it's, uh, it's just out of, out of bounds. There's so many different organizations that are doing wonderful things, both Post Carbon Institute is one of them and the transition movement. How do you feel that it's going in terms of coalition building among all these groups that are kind of working towards very similar ends? The way the nonprofit sector is set up is kind of dysfunctional, I have to say. I mean, I work for a nonprofit organization and I, I'm proud of the work we do. And at the same time, we're all depending on dollars from either small donors or from foundations. And the foundations are a dysfunctional bunch themselves. I say that hoping that no foundation who wants to fund us is listening, but <laughs> assuming they aren't, <laughs> I would point out that that they get their money through investments and a lot of that money is invested in stuff that's totally unsustainable. And they only tend to give away a certain percentage of their money. And that's based on economic growth. You know, as long as the stock market is growing, they can give away their annual earnings from the stocks and bonds they hold. But if the, the economy starts collapsing, then foundations suddenly all pull back and they don't give any money away. And that's, of course, exactly the moment when the nonprofit sector needs more support in order to do more work. Because a lot of the work that gets shouldered within communities, really practical work from, you know, food banks on up, all of that is nonprofit stuff. And so nonprofits need more help 
when the economy is doing poorly and the foundations don't want to give as much money when the economy is doing poorly. So the whole thing is just, it's not set up well, but that's what we have. And also, of course, because the nonprofits are having to compete for the same, a lot of the same pools of, of capital, then they tend to be competitive with one another, which is too bad because, as you said, we're all trying to do a lot of the same things. So we as an organization try to partner as much as we can. Transition has been a partner for a long time, and we helped set up Transition US as a, as a hub for a transition movement in the United States. Uh, and we partner with lots of other organizations, and, and we see that as the, as the best way to go. So how do you apply ideas about resilience to these movements and these nonprofits? Uh, we can talk about communities, but the people who've done a lot of the work to help communities be resilient, how do they establish resilience among themselves? <laughs> Well, it's a complicated uh, question. It involves uh, finding income sources that sometimes are marginal, but that don't compromise your, your work, don't, don't take a, uh, too much uh, attention away from your, your main mission. Nobody wants to spend 75% of their time fundraising and 25% of their time doing their actual work. When it gets to that point, you know, find a different line of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... So yeah, you have to have some money coming in in the door or some way of meeting your your basic needs. You know, sometimes if you're doing good work, the people around you are going to support you in ways other than money. Before everything became monetized in the world as it was a few decades ago, this was very common. You know, if you were a local doctor, for example, in a in a rural environment, you might be paid in chickens and eggs. Uh, more often than in U.S. dollars. And that was just fine. Uh, everybody, it worked for everybody. I think we may be moving back to that kind of situation where we just, we have to find ways of making sure we all get by. And that, you know, that calls us back to certain qualities of generosity, mutual respect that have kind of fallen by the wayside as we have prioritized the qualities that help us get ahead in a highly competitive capitalist society. In a communitarian society, it really takes a, a lot more of as I was saying, mutual aid becomes much more important than being the brightest bulb and getting as much attention and credit as, as you possibly can. So creating more community resilience is, is as much about your attitude and about your quality of character and quality of life as it is about some shiny new organizing model. So what do you suggest for those of us who do want to make our communities more resilient? Where should we start in this process? Well, first, be a good neighbor. Build a good reputation for yourself by being generous and helpful with the people around you. And then look for ways to get people together, even if it's just organizing your neighbors to share your extra produce. You know, somebody has apples while somebody else has zucchini. Well, let's, you know, even with the COVID pandemic, there are ways we can organize ourselves and share and, and get to talking about who needs what and uh, who are the most vulnerable people in your neighborhood. It's from those kinds of concerns and just, you know, real simple on the ground daily practices that new institutions uh, emerge. That's, that's where it starts. And then 
there will be people who are in your community or maybe who are listening now who do have skills in, say, finance or engineering or whatever that can be applied on the community level to solving basic problems organizing to find ways to use those skills within the community setting, creating institutions around them to enable those skills to to be practiced. You know, that takes time and ingenuity, but that's the next level. I recently read uh, an essay of yours called, Want to Change the World? Read This. And (laughs) there's a line in that essay that really touched me, and I wanted to ask you about it. What a perfect opportunity for an idealist intent on changing the world. Here we are in this time of true turmoil, turbulence in the world. What is that opportunity that you think for the idealists to change the world? Well, it's particularly an opportunity for young people because for young people, the rest of their lives, the rest of your life is going to be spent in a world that's very different from the world of the 20th century and the early 21st century. All of the systems that have been built based on cheap fossil fuel energy, the financial system, the food system, manufacturing system, are going to need to be replaced by something else that's, that's more sustainable, that's more locally organized around shorter supply chains. And that's going to take a lot of ingenuity at many, many levels. It's a huge opportunity. You know, you think the world could be a better place? Well, guess what? The world is not going to be the way it is. It's going to have to be redesigned. So if you'd like to be part of that, uh, you have a blank canvas in front of you. It's back to the drawing board. And it's, right now, it's a pretty blank drawing board. There are a lot of good ideas floating around. It's not like people in my generation didn't have any good ideas, but most of them were not put in practice. And a lot of them really require dusting off and you know rethinking to see if they actually will work in, in the real situations that are confronting us. Whether you're into money and finance, well, our money and financial system needs to be reinvented. You like food? Well, our food system is totally dysfunctional and needs to be redesigned. So (laughs) it's, it's all up to you. Good luck and get to work. It is a sorry reflection on our generation and those before us that we haven't done a better job of leaving a plan. I saw you, yeah. I saw you quoted in one of your articles, a goal without a plan is just a wish. We've been wishing a long time, but we haven't left a tangible plans. Part of the reason I started this podcast and the nature of my website is, well, I would love a coalition to come together to formulate a plan you think a global plan is unrealistic unless it focuses on each individual community doing its own thing? Or can there be some concerted effort among all those individual communities working together to form a new one world coalition? Well, certainly a global resolve to deal with our crisis of unsustainability would be a great place to start. And there are a lot of principles that could be agreed upon at a global level, like no more using renewable resources faster than they can regenerate themselves. That is a basic principle that if we get it, we can survive. If we don't get it, we won't. So that would be one of the good places to start at a global level, just getting agreement on that principle and others. Sharing best practices. 
because there are so many different, very, very different cultures and communities around the world. And some of them have actually done really, really well at solving uh, certain of these, of these problems. And wouldn't it be great if everybody knew what they were doing mm. and could benefit from that. So that's, that's another way in which global communications and, and global agreement could really, really help. If we don't have that kind of global coordination, it'll be much harder for local communities to get through this. But the heavy lifting is going to be, I think, at the local and regional level, because that's the kind of granularity that's going to emerge at the end of the day. We are going to have to shorten our supply chains without cheap transport fuel. Globalization is going to start running in reverse. And, And so we need to plan for that. It's a local future. Well, this idea of global principles and practices is something that really excites me. Uh, For example, biomimicry, Mm -hmm. they have the idea that we should be nourishing and sustaining places that nourish and sustain us. Everything we generate, produce, should have a place to go in the natural ecosystem. I think there's certain principles and practices that if we had a group of us brainstorming together, we could generate... I'm basically putting a bug in your ear, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Would you be amenable to to, uh, bringing Post Carbon Institute into a a dialogue of generating some global principles and practices that every community could apply? Absolutely. Sure. That's wonderful. My favorite last question to ask guests is if you would have any parting words of wisdom for us before we sign off for today. We've made profit the central focus in our lives as a society for a long time, but profit doesn't really make us that happy. Beauty is something that that has been a motivator, not just for human beings, but throughout nature. You know, why do birds have colorful feathers and sing beautiful songs? Well, it's to attract mates. Yeah, but it becomes an obsession. You know, birds aren't always just doing that to attract mates. They do it because it's, they love it. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing for us. And beauty is something that I think we can organize our lives around increasingly in the future as, as we lose, you know, the profit motive and other, other motivators that have kept us on this, this track of, of world conquest and destruction. And life really could be, I think, very, very beautiful for our descendants as we, as we make some better choices. That's wonderful. But part of beauty, you would you say, is, you know, harmonious relationships among people, like what we're seeing yeah. now and people demanding social and economic justice. What do you think makes it's, up it's that beauty? Recognizing the beauty in one another, recognizing mm. the beauty in one another's cultures and languages and dances and music. There's so much to respect and to enjoy about one another. That's great. Richard Heinberg, it's just been a real pleasure speaking with you. I hope we can do it again sometime. That would be great. And thanks for your great work, Victor. That concludes Episode 8 of Nature Am I. I want to thank my guest, Richard Heinberg, for a fascinating and insightful conversation. To find out more about Richard's work, please visit his website, richardheinberg.com. That's H E I N. B-E-R-G. You can also find out about the Post Carbon Institute at postcarbon.org. If you're interested in community resilience, I strongly encourage you to take Richard's Think Resilience course. 
a self-study course consisting of a set of videos and self-tests. You can register for the course at education.resilience.org. To listen to previous episodes of this podcast, please visit naturemi.com and go to the podcast page. You may also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, stay tuned, stay well, and stay inspired. have been listening to the Nature MI podcast. To learn more about what we're doing to bring humanity more into balance with nature, please visit us at naturemi.com. We also welcome your ideas and feedback. If you would like to be a guest on a future podcast, let us know about your nature-inspired solutions and strategies. Thanks for listening.